0: please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Welcome to the final episode of the Aerospace Advantage for 2023. And as I mentioned last week, it's become our holiday tradition to share some stories about being on orbit or looking back from the cockpit. So this week we have General Retired Kevin Chili Chilton. We also have Major General Retired Larry stutt our own Heather Lucky Penny, and Air Force Fellow Lieutenant Colonel Gary Pluger glojek sharing their amazing experiences with you. Well, to get this final episode of 2023 started, we have our very own Heather Penny. And, you know, Heather and I, of course, just being friends, we share general aviation and we're still flying jets. I mean, Heather is the owner of multiple airplanes, but she's also type rated in several uh, business jets. So Heather, you have tremendous experience and I'm super excited to talk to you. And I know that the audience is excited to hear about your flying experience.
1: Yeah, thanks. Like, you know, I mean, that's, that's what it's like. We get together and we talk about flying because not only, you know, was it our job, but it's our passion too. So as I was thinking about, you know, this year and what was significant about this year and how we wanted to close it out, what really stood out to me was the first flight of the B-21. I mean, I know I'm a fighter pilot, but that is really iconic. This is the first new bomber of our generation. And frankly, given the pace at which uh, the Air Force recapitalizes its capabilities, it's probably going to be the, the primary bomber for the next three generations, right? You know, um, the B-2. Yeah, I mean, we haven't
0: uh, <laughs> we haven't seen a new bomber since, <laughs> since the B-2, right?
1: Yeah, the 1990s. And you think about that, you know, then you had... In, uh, in the 1980s, the B-1, before that was, what, the B-52, which first began its design cycles in 1947, and the B-52 is still flying and will be the backbone of our bomber fleet for the foreseeable future, right? But it yeah, got me... You know, thinking... It's
0: one of those catch-22s where on the one side we celebrate, of course, how amazing the B-52 is, but then it's also uh, the poster child for the problem set, which is, you know, our Air Force is, is too old, but, you know... So we'll we'll stay focused on uh, um, not talking <laughs> about policy changes right now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and no, uh, no. and really get into you know just some holiday stories. So uh, so yeah. you mentioned the B twenty one inspiring you. So uh, I want to hear about that.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, it's it's going to be an iconic bomber of our generation, and that got me thinking about other iconic bombers. And and yes, the B two for stealth bomber, and the B fifty two also very iconic, but. The B seventeen, I think, when we think about bombers, is perhaps the most iconic. We've seen the B seventeen in Memphis Bell. and also what got me thinking about this is Masters of the Air is is going to be coming out in early January, telling the story oh, of the Air Force. I'm so pumped Force. for that. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. You know, um, and and the B seventeen phenomenal aircraft for what we were asking it to do designed in the, in the late 1930s. Did you know they made almost 13,000 B-17s? I mean, just.
0: Wow. 13,000. And just to put that in context, right. And we talk about all the time, uh, we bought 21 B-2s at the last bomber buy.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, So when you think about pure conflict and attrition again, all right, so let's, let's get back, back to happy land because my story really is about flying the B-17 because I've had the chance to. I've participated in living history uh, flight experiences where you actually get to fly these old World War II aircraft and bring them to small town America. And what a privilege that is, you know, sitting in the right seat of the B-17, getting to start it, getting to take it off, fly, and give rides to Americans so that they can actually experience the very physical, visceral, and emotional piece of of flying these airplanes. Because it's one thing when they're just like parked and plaqued, right? I mean, the airplanes are euthanized and and they're just sitting there static and you read about their horsepower and their altitudes and so forth. But actually getting to hear it start up, getting to see it move, see it fly, or be in the belly of the beast when it is in flight is something totally different. So I thought I would take the audience through a little bit of a, a little bit of a flight, you know, because it is so very different.
0: Yeah, please do. Because, you know, you what you just said really struck a chord with me. It's, it's one thing when you see a static display. It's a different thing when you walk up to an airplane that, you know, flies or just flew and you, you feel the warmth from the engine, right? I mean, it's it's like a living, breathing machine there. Um, yeah, so I the, can the, only imagine the, what it was like for you walking up to the B-17 knowing that you're going to go fly it.
1: Exactly. So after just walking around the aircraft, making sure you've got enough oil, 26 gallons in each engine, right? Enough fuel for the flight and making sure that all of the flight controls and everything's in good condition. One of the most important things we do is pull the props through. And it's like you do this on uh, on your steerman just like I do, pulling sure. the propellers through on that radial engine. And for the audience so that they understand why that's important it's not just for good looks and for the 17 with those big 18 20 uh, radial engines they produce 1200 horsepower nine cylinders so you have to pull the at least nine blades through to make sure that you've been able to uh, exercise each individual cylinder we're doing that to make sure that there's no hydraulic lock because with them being radial engines the oil's going to fall from those top cylinders down to the bottom cylinders and unlike air, which is compressible, fluid is not. And so if you have oil in one of those bottom cylinders, as that piston comes down, it's going to stop prematurely, not be able to travel the full distance of the cylinder and could bend a rod or could lead to engine failure. So that's why we do that at the very beginning. So, you know, we grab a couple people and you pull the propeller through nine times minimum. I like to give a couple extra blades, you know, for mom and, uh, and good luck. And we do that for all three engines. So it's, it's, it's quite a physical effort before you even get to the point where you're, you're thinking about starting engines. There's two ways to enter uh, the B-17. One is where we bring the passengers in. The other is where some of the, the crew primarily goes in. And what I'm talking about is on the aft right side is where that, where you can enter from the tail but then to get up into the cockpit, there's actually a, a crew door that swings down from the bottom of the airplane. There are no ladders, you gotta jump up, you gotta catch the top of, the, of that little door frame, which is probably about a two and a half by two and a half square, and then swing your body up and then into the fuselage.
0: So Heather, this is bringing me back into 12 o'clock high. So that was not just for the movie, like you really grab the bar and swing in like you know you're super cool?
1: Yeah, exactly. You really grab that bar and you swing in like you're super cool. Um, For short people like me, not super easy, but it did uh, give you style points. So the cockpit's really not that big, especially when you're considering all the crew duties, all the airmen that were up there. I mean, the crew for the B-17 was 10 people. Um, So you swing yourself up there, you maneuver your way into into the right seat or into the left seat. And you've got to move your way and not bonk your noggin on things because, like, you've got the stanchion there for um, uh, for the turret, for the actual flying duties. You've got the pilot, the co-pilot, and the flight engineer. Downstairs, you've got the navigator, and you've got the bombardier. One of the things that surprised me when I first started flying the B-17 was that there's an autopilot, right? Because you would put the airplane on autopilot. You would actually give the flight controls down to the bombardier because they would fly you from the IP the initial point to the target so when it actually came time to hit the IP the pilot and the co-pilot were not flying which was something that was really interesting to me because as a fighter pilot i I've got you know control of the airplane the whole time oh this is something interesting that I think the, um, the audience would be interested in is that uh, the B-17 is actually a very electric airplane clearly it's cables and yeah, clearly it's cables and pulleys to, um, to the flight controls. So as you walk through like if, if the Bombay, if you walk through the back, you can actually see the, the cables that connect the, uh, the yokes and the rudders to the flight controls. But the only hydraulics on the airplane, I flew the G model, were primarily for the brakes and the cowl flaps. Now, they did do some other um, turret controls in the G model, uh, but you know that wasn't activated when I was flying it. So really, it's only the it's only the the brakes and the cowl flaps that use hydraulics for everything else. The gear, the flaps are all electric. So you really have to in the in part of the pre-flight, we go through a fairly um, uh, intensive check of the electrics. Now the the G model that I flew, um, we had a generator on the number three engine. So instead of starting one, two, three, four, we would actually start three, four, one, two. Because once we got that generator going, that could then provide us the electrical power for the direct drive starters for the other engines. The, uh, you know, the B-17s in World War II, they actually had an electrical inertial starter that you then meshed to begin moving the propeller around. So you get up there um, in sitting in the right seat, I'm uh, doing the pre-oil. So I'm dribbling oil uh, using an electric uh, oil pump. I'm dribbling oil into the cylinders from the top to try and make sure that Everything is well lubricated, so that when we start the engines, we're not getting that friction. We're not gonna have any kind of uh, metallic block. Uh, and then, so everything's pre-oiled, and then we're gonna go ahead and start number three. So we've got the battery on, we've got the direct drive, and you're counting blades. One, two, three, four, prime. And when you prime is when we're turning the magnetos on. And you, what, part, of the, part of the reason we're swinging those blades through is to get the inertia um, for for the start, so you're getting the propeller to give the inertia, so that you're not going to have to worry about necessarily a backfire or the engine uh, falling back on itself. But I think it's important for the audience to know that this is, um, you know, this is really an art. Unlike, you know, when we started our F16s, it, you know it was always a it was a very reliable start for every turbine I've ever flown has been very, very reliable. But these round motors, as you know, slick, it's really an art to get them started.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, probably the most complicated start that we ever had was the T-37 with the little, you know, spring-loaded switches, right, where you had to push one up and then the other and then release one while you're holding the other, right? I mean, that was like the most complicated start that we had in our career.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, or, or maybe even the huffer um, in the uh, in the T-38 because you had to make sure that right. you had a pull to, to get the turbine going with the air start. But, you know, even then it was it was always very reliable. And so there's really an art to getting these radial engines started. So you get all four start and when they go, you know, there's there's oil already in the cylinder. So smoke is going to come out and you can feel the aircraft shake and vibrate. I mean, this really is a living creature when you get the engine started, when you get it going and you begin to hear all sorts of noises as the aircraft wakes up. Um, so we do have the hydraulic pump is is there in the cockpit. So you hear that thing whirring as it's pressurizing, so that you have the have the brakes when you're taxing. People need to understand like as it this is a four engine tail dragger. It is and it's enormous. There is so much inertia and mass as you maneuver the aircraft and taxi the aircraft, much less just get it airborne, right? So as you begin to taxi, you've, you've waited for the, uh, the engines to warm up, you get to hundred, um, then, then we're willing to push them up above a thousand RPM and you start to taxi. And as long as we're going straight, we're gonna make sure that that tail wheel is locked. And that's down in between the pilot and the co-pilot. And it, there's a little button um, on this handle that, that you have to reach down and you have to push the button and pull it up and you lock the tail wheel and you can feel the physical lock of the tail wheel. And that's to make sure that the airplane stays going straight. Because you've got this big fin on the back of you, which is ready to catch any kind of wind and weather vane you in the direction of the wind. And then suddenly you're going where you don't want to go, which is off the taxiway. And then, yeah, and, and, back- and Heather, it is
0: so worth mentioning that the tail dragger piece of all this is, is such a huge game changer from a complexity standpoint uh, on the ground, right? Once, once you're airborne, it's, it's not a big deal that it's a that it's a tail dragger, but, but taxiing, taking off and landing the airplane and the transitions from taxiing to taking off and you know from landing to taxiing is just so, da- You know, I hate to say, but it's just so dangerous because you can ground loop these things with all that mass that you mentioned. It's a lot.
1: Yeah, I know. Thanks for pointing that out. You know, in, uh, in the interwar years, if you weren't a major, they wouldn't let you fly the B-17 and then suddenly the war kicks off and we got 19-year-olds that are sitting in the left seat flying this airplane. It just really gives you an idea for um, the kind of how actual combat changed the acceptable level of risk for who was qualified to, to fly these airplanes. But you're right. I mean, and you really do feel that mass. And it's, you know, from the main gear all the way back to the tailwheel is a far distance. And so you have to be conscientious of that. Not only to make sure that you don't take out a taxiway light or, you know, some poor guy that's sitting behind you. But the further that distance is, the more likely the aircraft is to uh, to, to more prone it is to ground looping because it's easier for it to get outside of the, the main gear, which are fairly long. Yeah, and,
0: and for those that, that don't know what we're talking about, the easy thing is think about pushing a shopping cart backwards, right? As soon as you uh, <laughs> push it away from your hands, the thing was going to spin around to try to go the correct way, if you will. That's what the airplane's always trying to do, do as a pilot. You're, you're just fighting that the whole time.
1: Yeah, and so as you're, as you're, you're tapping on the toe brakes, trolling the airplane, and it's lots of minor corrections. And you can hear the squeak of the brakes, and then you can hear the the hydraulic pump repressurize. There's a wobble pump on the right-hand side of the co-pilot seat in case you need to, uh, to activate that and actually manually pump up the hydraulics, which I had to do once on a landing. Um, to make sure that, uh, that you have the brakes uh, available. Run up is pretty standard for any kind of, uh, you know, uh, reciprocating engine, you know, you're checking your magnetos, you're checking to make sure that uh, you've got the right oil pressure and so forth. And then, but the takeoff um, is probably one of the more complex things that you do. Um, you know, you're gonna push, and with those four engines, It's really interesting how they connect all four of those engines. You use an underhanded grip to push those forward. The co-pilot's gonna come up behind to make sure that the throttles are even and that they all go forward. And you're managing the, uh, the friction, the throttle friction you're calling out your air speeds. You're always making sure that, you know, tail definitely is going to be locked. Uh, you're using all your uh, crosswind inputs appropriately. And you're going to bring that tail up just a little bit and let the airplane then fly it off. But as you bring that tail up, you've got the P factor of all four of those 1200 horsepower, you know, engines, which are all spinning in the same direction. So that's a pretty significant gyroscopic moment that you have to be ready to counter with rudder which a lot of jet pilots don't know how to use, like it's an actual rudder, to make sure that you stay straight because then you no longer have that locked tail wheel to give you that directional stability. And then the airplane just flies itself off. When you take off, as you mentioned, Slick, it's, it's just flying like it's flying like every other airplane. But it is heavy flight controls. It's very, very stable. Um, you know, I've heard some people describe it as like driving a concrete truck on uh, on a Formula One racetrack. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to anticipate what the airplane does. But this is something that I think a lot of people don't really realize whether or not they. They're flying um, jets or airliners or little airplanes. Is that in these older, really mechanical aircraft, you can feel when people move around the airplane. People move to the front, you got to retrim. People move to the back, you got to retrim. People move around, you're constantly retrimming. So I think about like the boys that flew this, um, you know, and as their crew were maneuvering around or walking around, but especially as they were entering the turbulence of these flak filled skies. This is something you are never putting, you know, you can never take your hands off. You are always having to control this airplane and it's a heavy, it's a very heavy forces. They're doing these in tight box formations. I just have to imagine how fatigued they were after flying these 10 hour sorties, right? In addition to everything else that they're doing. So, you know, I'd like to close out by saying that it was such a privilege to be able to fly the B-17, uh, not only because, hey, it's cool flying, but really, in addition to going around to small town America, which was so phenomenal, um, you know, we're taking these airplanes to, to people who may or may not ever have the opportunity to go to the Smithsonian, to go to the Udvar and it's everything from you know four-year-old little kids, and maybe you've seen this in a cartoon or a book or some kind of movie, and they get really excited and it actually makes it real to them. Um, and then they hear something they've never heard before, and that engine starts up. To the veterans who are have been brought out by their retirement community, and they come out and they like you know they stand up out of their wheelchairs and they stand straight again. I mean, it's just if you think about what these veterans did, it was the Greatest adventure. It was the most tragic um, experience of their life, and probably the most meaningful thing they ever did with their lives was what they went through on a daily basis, over and over and over again, uh, to save the free world uh, from Nazism and fascism. Uh, just the and as we're losing that that last generation, one of the reasons why I find this you know the opportunity to fly the B seventeen so precious is that. These aircraft are the last witnesses. They are the last testimonials to the courage and the sacrifice of that generation, which set the world on a trajectory that was Pax Americana. Uh, and so the sacrifices and their courage and their bravery, it is etched, it is, those ghosts are in the metal of these aircraft. And so it's truly not just, like I said, fun flying, but really is a, the testimonial to the greatest generation and the DNA that, that, that still exists within our, our warfighters today.
0: Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that because it's so important as we move our air force and space force forward to, to never forget where we came from. and, And of course, to honor those that did the heavy lifting for us, as you mentioned, I mean, and you're right, I've been there. I've, I've seen the 80 plus year old veteran stand straight up when they They got pushed all the way there from their house, right into the car and, and to the flight line. And then they see that airplane fly again and they stand up and salute. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, I know fighter pilots don't cry, but every once in a while it gets hot on the flight line and and your eyes will sweat when you see something like that. And really thanks for, for sharing your thoughts on that.
1: Thank you, Slick and happy holidays to everyone.
0: And then we also have Plugger with us as well. So really, really excited to hear some, uh, low altitude stories from you, Plugger. It's good to be back. Merry Christmas! Of course, as an as an F sixteen guy, I could say uh, giving my A ten brother in the, a little shot in the ribs here. So sticking
2: with warbirds, I'll talk about the A ten now.
1: Yeah, that's
0: funny.
2: <laughs> sticking with the, like human experiences, I'll, I'll tell something that has to do a little bit with mutual support. It's kind of an admin story, but it it gets back to you know flying with the other people. I should remind everybody that as the active duty Air Force fellow here, everything I say, those thoughts are my own, uh, not necessarily the position of the. Uh, Air Force or the DOD. But most importantly, since these are going to be flying stories, I promise that everything's going to be at least 10% truth. So there I was. We're taking off out of Korea. We were at Osama at the time. We're on our way to a red flag, Alaska. And I have a six ship that I'm taking over to Yakota because we're going to fly over to Yakota. And then we're going to take the AOS a couple of days later to fly all the way up over the Pacific to Alaska. So we have two bags of gas on the A10, which She's not real fast and, you know, not a ton of thrust in those engines, but you put two full bags of gas on there and your uh, thrust weight ratio is not super high. <laughs> so we all uh, kind of trundle off the runway there and we're on our way to Yakota. And it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's a spring day. And we get up there and I've got the six ship and we're, you know, on the way to Japan. Most of the way over there, it's pretty uneventful. And we're given one of our younger lieutenants a hard time. He says some funny things to include, you know, anybody know what that island is off our nose? And I was like... Two, that's Japan. That's where you're going to land your jet. So we're on the way over there, but we get maybe, you know, 100 miles out of Tokyo and we realize, wow, the weather's notably worse than what we got from weather. So probably every pilot has a story like that where they're on their way and they realize pretty soon they're about to shoot an approach to MINS. Um, But I have a six ship. I'm entering Tokyo Center and I'm realizing, wow, we're going to have to all do individual approaches. So, you know, a flight split, depending on where you are, can be either easy or if you're in a foreign country and, you know, Working with people who speak English on the radio, but maybe it's their second language, it can be a little bit more harrowing. So, you know, I call up Tokyo Center and I'm like, okay, stand by for a long request. I need to do a flight split for six jets and put them all in the ILS into Yakota, And I want to go, you know, six, five, four, three, two, one. I'll, I'll go, you know, kind of youngest guy, number six first, and then we'll all go reverse order. I'll be last. So I start getting everybody split off. Tokyo's doing a pretty good job. We get six split off, we get five split off, and then four lets me know that he's got trapped gas in one of those external tanks, which is probably something we should have noticed earlier. But, um, you know, he had been going through normal ops checks, you know, in terms of the total. And so I start doing some math and I realized that not only are we about to shoot a, you know, an approach to MINS, but he does not have divert fuel anymore. So halfway through this flight split with Tokyo, I'm like, hey guys, by the way, I now need to send number four direct to the field because he's, you know, low on gas. So I know my request was to have six and five who are already gone. I need to put four out ahead of them and then six and five back in and then three, two, one behind that. And so this entire thing, I pretty much blow up all of Tokyo's airspace, trying to get this train of six jets onto final. We finally get four out there and he's on final. We've got everybody else lined up. um, And you know, there, there's probably this feeling that everybody else has had too, that's led a flight where you go, okay, all my guys and girls are good. Just take care of yourself, right? Just now don't mess it up in your own jet. So I get myself on the ILS. I run through all of my checks. You know, I've got my localizer, my inbound course. I've got, done my descent check. I know what speeds I'm going to be flying. I slow it down and I put the gear handle down and I get two green lights. And so here I am. Oh. Everybody else is on final. <laughs> I don't have a ton of extra gas because I'm the one who took the longest vector, right? And so I'm like, okay, I could work this, but then I would definitely have to divert. And if I divert, I have nobody going with me, nobody to watch for me. And so, you know, kind of feeling like I'm in an interesting place, descending over Mount Fuji, which is like a 12,000 foot mountain, of course, in the weather. So, you know, not the most comfortable out there and getting on final. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's probably just a burned out light bulb. But then having a little bit of a background in, in human factors, I did my master's in human factors. So I'm like, this is also that time where somebody starts, you know, unscrewing light bulbs and replacing light bulbs in the weather over the mountains after a long sortie and, you know, bad things happen. So, What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, so as I'm getting down there on final, I'm like, okay, you know, most of the other indications look good. I can see something hanging out there in my mirror. So I kind of move my mirror so I can see a main gear back on that side. I'm like, all right, everybody listen up on flight. I'm about to break out of the weather. You need to tell me if you see a landing light. And so at that moment, I, I pop out of the weather and who is it? But it's that young lieutenant that we've been making fun of for, you know, the last two hours, the one that, you know, we're given a hard time to, who goes, one good landing light. I'm like, all pull right, we'll throttles back that, We'll set it down on the runway there. So it's one of those things where you've got, you know, we tend to give young guys a hard time, but when you need the mutual support, they also tend to come through. So that was one of those days where it was probably like a lot of flying stories. You know, you have maybe two hours and 15 minutes worth of boredom and then 15 minutes of pretty intense problem solving. And yeah, having a good team out there, no matter, you know, how young they are is super important. Yeah. I could not
0: agree more. I mean, like you said, the mutual support and where these guys come through for you in a pinch, um, is really what it's all about. I mean, we are as much as we love being, you know, single seat fighter folks. It is absolutely the team that really brings the
2: firepower together. Yeah. I remember at one point when we were, this is probably back in pilot training. Somebody saying like, oh, I don't want to fly fighters. I want to work with a team. And like a, a bunch of <laughs> fighter pilots turned around and looked at him and were like, excuse me?
1: What do you, do you have- think flying fighters is yeah, all about? Like
2: you're, you're going out there with a four ship or maybe a hundred ship LFE. You're working with JTACs on the ground constantly. You know, you're working with people back in, in a talk over, you know, three, four different frequencies. You're doing combat search and rescue with helicopters and PJs and, you know, other forces that may be on the ground trying to help you out. Uh, you've got your seed coverage, your OC, like it is all a team and a force package and you live and die by that team.
1: So here's the real question, plugger. Did you buy the beer?
2: I'm sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> it, so this actually made me think of another story. This is super simple and short, but I'm taxing out through a busy ramp one day. This is again at o- o- Osan Air Base uh, in Korea. And I have a young number two behind me, just taxing, follow me. It's just a two ship, you know, normal day, good weather, all the things. And this fuel truck starts driving. And he was no kidding gonna drive right in front of me. And my number two, again, young Lieutenant Wingman. He just, you know, sometimes we go direct to the call sign, not even the like, hey, one, two request or one, two recommend. It was plugger, stop. Slammed on my brakes and field trucks drives right in front of me. We went on and flew that, so he came back and he had a really nice bottle of scotch sitting on his desk. <laughs> so, like, dude, you, you know, I probably would have seen it, but you know what? It doesn't matter. You did exactly the right thing. You told me to stop. I trusted you without question and we did it. So I think that's what it's all about is that mutual support and like how we work as a team.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and it's also the, the soft skill set of, Knowing how to get people's attention the right way, you know, being directive, descriptive, and, and I talked about it when we had a, a student. He didn't fully G lock, but he was an A lock, and I, you know, somebody at some point during our career had mentioned, you know, hey, if you call somebody by like their first name, flying, like that's going to get their attention. You know? Um, you know, if someone's like Heather while you're in the middle of flying a jet, you're like, that's something I don't hear on the radio. So, you know, great technique by your women to just call you by your call sign to get your attention. That not using the tactical or the flight call sign of the day, uh, you obviously know something is abnormal when you hear that.
1: You know, it's interesting, that's actually something that Robin Olds did in Vietnam is that he would as he was planning out his missions, he'd reach out to the Connie's the day before the 121s um and talk with them about what he was looking for, what he was expecting and ensuring that they called him not by the call sign but by his name so that he knew that was that call was for him and didn't get lost on strike frequency, which if any of y'all listened to old Vietnam tapes, strike, you know, the strike frequency, it is jam-packed.
2: Yeah. I, I remember in Afghanistan, we had a picture of all of the different, it was oriented around a map. And each little fob and cop, this is like 2013, 2014, so we are starting to shut some down. But each place that we had JTACs out there, so the combat controllers or the uh, TACPs, we had their call sign, their picture, and their real name. So we could Very call them up. Cool. We could pre-brief with them if we were going somewhere that, you know, was pre-planned. Uh, you could be looking at the guy's picture as you were talking to him, you knew his real name and then that was what you saw while you were up there, not just another voice on the end of the radio. Yeah, that's great.
0: those are incredible stories. I really want to get the generals to chime in here. So, Chili Stutz, take it away.
3: It's like it's been my pleasure, that's for sure. And I want to wish uh, you and all our listeners out there a great holiday season. Hope everybody has a chance to spend time with family, friends and get some relaxation in before we read 2024.
4: Yeah, I'll add my Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all. And General Chilton, I hope you have a lot of snow out there in Colorado Springs. Thanks, buddy.
0: (laughs) All right. Now, you know, having two general officers here on the podcast today, I know that especially, you know, as a young guy, you look up to folks like you all and think, you know, these fighter pilots are perfect. I mean, everything that they do is just well thought out. Perfectly executed at all times. But as I learn going through the ranks and especially getting a chance to talk with folks, that there's probably some learning points along the way that, that made you all into uh, the amazing leaders that you are. So I'd love to hear some of the stuff or learning points that, that you had as, as you were growing through your career.
4: I think uh, General Chilton <laughs> is probably as perfect as you can get. <laughs>
3: I don't know. I was going to say, I'm. I, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing... Fighter pilots are rightly accused of as having maybe a slightly oversized ego, but yeah. you know, I think in our business, the business of being a fighter pilot, if you don't if you don't think you're the best, then you know you shouldn't be in the business. I mean, you're certainly always striving to be the best. But I've got a story I can tell about a young Lieutenant Chilton, even before he he knew he was going to be a fighter pilot, he thought he wanted to be. I was in I was in T thirty seven training, so primary jet training at Williams Air Force Base. I know. So um, I had, I'd been cleared solo. Uh, first time to go out to the, the local area to fly around by yourself. And you were supposed to go out and practice your aerobatics and certain maneuvers you weren't supposed to do like stims and, um, but, and then come back to a pattern, do a couple of patterns in my arm. So no one's watching for the first time. And I was out in that area doing some acrobatics when I looked down and I saw this Cessna looked like to me, light airplane anyways, flying through my area down below me. And there were military operating areas where we flew, which were not restricted areas. So it was actually legal for this guy to be flying through there. It wasn't smart, yeah. but he had, he had made the decision to fly BFR, not talking to anybody yeah. through our area to the area I was operating in and I looked down and I went, all of a sudden I shot, you know, flashed back to all my these World War II movies I've watched <laughs> and stuff. But, you know, Airplanes rolling in on other airplanes. I said, I'm going to roll in on this guy. Oh so, boy. Oh boy. So I, so I roll over my back, pull down, roll out and I got him four-sided. And I'm diving in from above in my mighty T-37. You know, I think the top speed on that was 250 yeah. knots, mm-hmm. but he was probably, he was probably doing about 80 or 90. And, he went from being a small little airplane to getting tremendously big in my windscreen really fast and I thought oh my god I'm gonna hit him and so I just snatched the stick back in my lap as hard as I could and then obviously I didn't hit him but the next thing I knew I'm in this gentle climb at about 1g thank god and um, I'm feeling really funny I'm kind of I got my jerking a little bit and yeah. I feel really tingly and it's like, I'm waking up. And for a moment there, it's like, what happened? Yeah. You know, oh my God. What's gosh. going on. And um, I had, I really didn't have any idea of the fact that I had blacked myself. I had I locked myself. Oh my gosh. Thank God in an upward vector. And it wasn't until years later when G lock became a big issue you know, when particularly after the F-16 came in with right. its 9G capability and we had some tragic accidents where they, they started talking about what the symptoms were. And this is many years later, and I'm going, holy smokes, that's what happened to me in pilot training. You know, at the time, I had no clue. I just, at first, I thought maybe I was hypoxic. I put my oxygen 100%, but, you know, having narrowly hit this guide, my heart was still beating pretty oh, fast. I, oh, my you know, God. All I did, the rest of that sortie was just kind of drill around the area <laughs> and came back in and put a couple landings. And, and I never thought to tell anybody. I didn't want, didn't want to tell them. I almost ran into a civilian airplane. Oh boy. But I had no idea that I'd G-locked myself yeah. two years later. Yeah. And I was so lucky.
4: Oh, it, this is amazing. So you're not going to believe this, <laughs> but
3: I, I also... I don't believe anything. No,
4: <laughs> um, you know, checks in the mail. I'm telling the truth now. I had... from what you've said, identical experience in T-37s and pilot training. I was advanced. No kidding. This is my setup was, it was the first solo going out to the area because the first, um, solos in the pattern. And so this was just like you out to the area and I was cleared to do like three different aerobatic maneuvers. And one was a loop So I set myself up, you know, out there. It's just, you know, it's thrilling. You're out there all by yourself in this T-37 and I lay in those five G's and I was as relaxed. Um, Now, because I'm so much younger than you, Chili, uh, we had those academics before we went out. So I knew I pulled those five G's. I had not tensed up my legs. Of course, in the T-37, we didn't have G suits and the next thing I know, I'm, I see my gloves in front of me. My, my arms are just kind of floating. I'm kind of zero G and I, it's surreal. I don't know where I'm at. And I, and slowly the consciousness comes back to me and I realize exactly what I've done. So I did what you did. What any good pilot training student, student would do is I drilled around, you know, with the sweat coming off my, out of my helmet, you know, running down the back of my flight suit as I sat there and then recovered and I landed and I went in and I was just looking around like, does anybody know what I did? And I swear, I thought I, the scheduler greeted me and said, how'd it go? And I, you know, does he know something? It was great. It was fantastic. My IP says, how'd it go? I go, oh, it was just great. And I never ever fessed up to that, you know, for decades. I probably I was a Colonel when I told this story. But it makes you wonder, you know. It makes you wonder how many pilots. I mean, just you and me having the, the identical story. It makes you wonder how many times that's happened out there, no one knows that. Abs-
3: Absolutely, or just in the history of fighter aviation in World War II. Yeah, you know, I, I don't remember anybody ever talking about G lock until the F sixteen came around. Really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we were taught to do the yeah, I guess it was called the M one maneuver or something. Yeah, in Pilot uh-huh. training, but right. Like you, I I when I. When that airplane filled my windscreen, I would not think about doing that. That one maneuver, I was
4: just <laughs> get <in>. away. <laughs> and
3: well, that so I, I put the stick in my lap without any preparation, just like you did. Yeah, yeah,
4: like same that. dynamic. You know, you know, I, I will say, you know, slick. You bring up, you know, there's no lack of ego in a fighter pilot, but because of that experience, I never ever came close to anything like that again in my flying career. And I was pulling 9Gs all the time in the F-16 and loving it. But it was one of those lessons that, that sticks with you for a long time, that's for sure. I hope I don't get my wings rescinded by the Air Force when this gets aired. <laughs> yeah,
0: you might, might get a visit by a JAG. Uh-huh.
4: <laughs> I don't know. I think I've had other experiences. Have you had any things that have happened on the ground you'd like to talk about that made you a smarter man? smarter fighter pilot there,
3: Gerald? Are you asking me? (laughs) I don't know if it may be a smarter fighter pilot. I I, I didn't have a... This has nothing to do with flying, really. It really has to do with camaraderie and tradition, I think, and just good people. Um, I may be the only wing commander in the history of wing commanderdom that the first Monday in command, I found myself on my own blobber. (laughs) <laughs> police blotter that morning, yeah, I had taken command of the Mike Rapunzel swing you know, on a Thursday. And um, so late in Thursday afternoon, and I think it was Friday evening, maybe in that night, where you know my family, were are just barely moved into the house on base, boxes everywhere. And it got the kids tucked in and Kathy and I were sound asleep. And about midnight, she elbows me and wakes me up and says, I think we're being roof stomped. <laughs> no, one eye, open one eye and I go, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> so I, you know, it was first night in command. So I, I, I jumped out of bed and I run out the front door and grab the garden hose, start unreeling it. And for those listeners who don't know what a roof stomp is, it's when you just uh, get a bunch of typically. Well lubricated.
4: <laughs> okay. uh, pilots uh,
3: <laughs> late in the evening and have a bright idea to go sneak up on top of somebody's roof and jump up and down. And and then the tradition is that the person inside tries to hose you down. And and then followed by that, people come off the roof and, and the Stompy is supposed to invite everybody in for drinks and breakfast. Yeah. And so I actually was thinking, this is pretty cool. You know, this person I did command. Jumping on my rear, so I'm out trying to am the hose when around the corner from behind the house comes this uh, woman screaming, uh, yelling and screaming, and with a German accent, by the way, because she was uh, German orange. I didn't know her. This <laughs> yelling, is not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> yelling, nine von von. Call 911! Call 911! Going, what? What's going on? This so is called nine one one. So the captain's coming out the front door about this time. I need to call nine one one. I'll go. What's going on? Well, I walk around the corner, Sure up. There's a ladder. Guys are coming down the ladder. But next to the ladder, laying face down in the bushes, is, is one of the pilots who has fallen off the ladder because he oh. he'd had a little bit a little bit more than too much of to drink. But about the time I got there. He's kind of pulling himself together, standing up. He's got mud all over his face and his flight suit. Are you okay? And he says, "Yeah, I think I'm okay." <laughs> okay, everybody offered to get in the house. <laughs> and, well, too late. My wife's already called nine one one, and so shortly oh. thereafter, you know, it looks like the Normandy invasion of our house and fire trucks and police officers and everybody. So I go out, and who's in charge here? I said, "Well, that would be me." And, <laughs> the uh, wink, man. <laughs> and uh, he has no idea I think, who he's talking to. I mean, I'm brand new. And he says, Well, we got, I want to call of someone who's hurt or was an issue. I go, No, everything's okay. We're in control here. And he goes, Well, I need to take, get some information. Me, Jim, my name, serial number, whatever he needed, you know, I can give it all to him. And I said, I assure him everything's fine. And uh, he goes away. They finally kind of, like, leave. I go back inside and I said, Well, boys, I'd normally offer you a little Jeremiah weed or, or beer, but tonight it's going to be Coca Cola. <laughs> <laughs> the, he broke the they tradition. All thought I was, yeah, they all thought I was going to be upset or something. We were happy. But sure enough, Monday morning, security forces guys come, through the mission support group commander starts briefing police incidents over the weekend. And he's kind of got this little twinkle in his eyes. He goes, and at the top of the blotter <laughs> is, is, is the our way uh, commander. To, uh, <laughs> <to> police reporter <laughs> to number one, such and such avenue. And, and there seemed to be a problem at uh, General Children's House. Who's <laughs> yeah. on the blotter. So good spirit, good camaraderie, and good sense. I think you bailed that night, but I'll never forget that call nine one one.
4: Nine one one.
0: Oh yeah, the real question was, you know, why she wasn't still holding the ladder and why he fell off of it.
4: You know,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she had been on the roof or was just sitting there watching her husband come stumbling off the roof.
4: You know, roof stumps for people who do not know what they are. And suddenly you have this, you know, herd of people up, jumping up, and de- the house just shakes like crazy. They're terrorized by that. So you have to kind of, you know, ease them into it. Uh, you got to be careful. It's, hey, I
3: sleep like d- the dead, which is why I didn't hear it. And Kathy, though, woke up. Uh, of, course, she says, of course. And, of course, she knew what it was. She says, hey,
4: I think I know what's going on. Yeah. Hey, I did find I, a part I, I distinguished myself in a blotter uh, a lot earlier in my career than you did. Which means, which is why you are such a stellar leader that you learn these (laughs) lessons later in your career. But I was, yes, I got in trouble. I was asked to do an accident investigation on an F-16 that its engine blew apart. And for the listeners, you have two different investigations, a safety uh, board investigation, which really tries to find out what happened There's a lot of no one's, everybody gets the freedom to say whatever they want, just so we can make sure we don't repeat those things again. then you have an accident investigation, which they get the data from the safety board, but they have to kind of figure out the accident for themselves. And this was considered a fairly easy job. So I was, as a major, I was asked to lead this accident investigation. I was out in Korea at the time. So I flew back to uh, Oklahoma ALC. And to look at the depot operation, my team, really superb guys, were very frustrated because we couldn't get a lot of direct information out of the depot people, the the technicians and leaders there, because now they're not obligated to incriminate themselves or talk about things that, you know, that aren't protected. So we are super frustrated. My team goes, my team goes, we got it. We got to get in there. We got to get in there and see what kind of work they're doing and um and they coached me on this and finally i said the major goes I goes okay i'm gonna go in there and i'm gonna go in on a sunday morning early i went over to the uh, bx and i got one of those instamatic cameras you know the disposable ones You get about i don't know 20 pictures on them and i went around this massive building just checking every door i just figured something might be open um and sure enough After about the 20th door, one was locked. The latch was locked, but it was not latched so I could open it. I'd go in, and I had a map. The guys would give me a map so I could find this engine assembly area where they're assembling turbines. And I started taking pictures. And it was kind of a mess, and we learned a lot of stuff. But suddenly, I hear these footsteps behind me, and this guy, the most incredible voice. It was like coming out of an elephant. He says, freeze, get on the ground, face down, put your hands over your head. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I immediately collapsed, chilly. I I didn't even question it. I just collapsed onto the asphalt or onto the concrete. And suddenly I've got like four guys, they got guns too. I'm looking up at them and they're asking me all these questions like, what are you doing here? You know, how did you get in? And I'm in my flight suit. I, I'm in my flight suit and my, my leather bomber jacket. And I'm like, wow. So they got me crushed on the ground. And they handcuffed me behind my back. They're still yelling at me as they take me down to this detention place. And the chief, master sergeant there, the security force, these guys are good. They, uh, their first act is to neutralize any threat. And so the chief picks up the phone and he says, he's calling the base commander. Says, we got a guy here who says he's a fighter pilot lieutenant working this accident board, and we just caught him, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the chief listens to the colonel and he says, What's your name? I say, I'm Larry Stutz Raymond. He barks it into the phone to the base commander, and he says, The chief comes back relaying to me whatever that was being said on the phone. He said, Did you go to Arizona State? I go, Yeah, <laughs> I went to Arizona State, and the chief goes, Okay, got it. Yeah, Colonel, okay. And he hangs up and he goes, man, did you know Colonel Tony Moras?" I go, oh my gosh, he was my ROTC instructor way back about 10 years ago at Arizona State. He goes, well, he's now the commander. And he says, we need to take pictures of you handcuffed. Then we need to unhandcuff you. And he says he wants you off his base and don't ever return again. <laughs> and so I got a framed picture of that blotter. And, and Chile, I'm going to send you a photo because I still have those photos. So you can see I love it. how I made the blotter as a major in the U.S. Air Force.
3: Well, you know, Stutz just emphasizes that, you know, in spite of all our shenanigans, as there is someone looking over us all the time.
4: Yeah, that's true. And
3: in this case, you know, both in our airplane incidences and, and certainly in your case, what are the odds? What are the odds? That connection we met, what are the odds? <laughs> Right, you, know, you, you wouldn't bet the ranch on that one.
4: That's <laughs> <laughs> a great story.
3: Well, you got any other flying stories you don't want to relate to? You learned a lesson besides uh, back Oh, yeah.
4: Life? Yeah, you know, I think that the fighter pilots learn a lot, like, like we did with our G-Locks. And I was uh, flying the F-16 later, and we deployed on a training mission to drop some live ordnance in the F-16 down in Puerto Rico. Rosie Roads. I don't know if you've ever. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, no, I've never been there, but certainly no, but no,
4: oh, it's just absolutely beautiful. And they had a live range there at the time. And in my F 16 and a two ship, we're going to go out and we're loaded with six Mark 82s each airplane. But it was miserable on that ramp. There was um, just that radio chatter. And I was tired. And I was, you know, I'd just been up the night before. Studying my Dash 1, probably, and uh, I was (laughs) just a lot of radio chatter. And so in the F-16, we had your VHF radio, which you talked to your wingman over, and you'd have that turned down a little bit. You had your main radio for air traffic control, and then you had the guard receiver, Mm -hmm. 243.0, that, you know, people could be screaming on if they had an emergency. And I had all three of those. We were on the same inner flight uh, VHF frequency. And I'm leading this two-ship, and I'm just, I, I've had enough. So I turned the guard receiver off. I turned the VH off. And I just kept the ATC uh, going. We take off live ordnance, heavyweight. We're doing burner climbouts, and the range isn't too far away. And in the very background, I hear some, on the VHF, I have it down really low. I can hear in this really dim voice, it turns out my wingman's like screaming at me. But it's so dim, I can barely, so I turn up the radio so I can hear what he's saying. Because he's behind me 20 seconds in trail. And I look back to see him. I'm doing a right-hand turnout, still in burner. And I look back to look at him and holy moly, I saw something no one should ever see (laughs) was out of the back end of my airplane 90 degrees to my flight path the wrong flame was coming out of the side of my back end of my aircraft and it was like a blowtorch. um i don't know i'm probably doing 250 knots by that time and and it's going out about 15 feet and then bending backwards and it was stunning of course i hear my wing was just screaming you're lead you're on fire lead you're on fire (laughs) So what it was an afterburner burn through, um, which, which can happen when you have damage to the afterburner can it's insulated with actually a layer of air. And if you disrupt that layer because somebody dinged it or whatever in maintenance, that'll just burn up the metal and it can burn through. And you've got some fuel right. cells back there. You gotta be really careful with. So, um, so I immediately came out of afterburner and it just, it stops that burning, but, I had been on fire and I'm just waiting to, you know. I turn out, I'm going to jettison my live ordnance so that I can come back for emergency landing. And I tip up the aircraft and I look down, we're over the water and there's just hundreds of boats. And mm-hmm. I, I bank left, <laughs> there's just hundreds of boats. And so I go, I can't get rid of these. Yeah, I'm going to hurt somebody. So I take these bombs all the way over to the range. I drop them on the range, come back, you know, safe landing. Everything's cool. And I get, you know, stop on the runway, get out. They take the airplane. I go back in, and there's my ops officer. And he goes, why didn't you get rid of those bombs? You should have gotten rid of those bombs right away. Go, I, I had to kill a lot of people. And he goes, your mission is to bring that aircraft back. And I go, oh, no, <laughs> what's it going to bomb a bunch of civilian boats off? Puerto Rico, that's a U.S. territory. We can't do that. Anyway, I was grounded for the next couple of days, even though, you know, I felt I did the right thing. Yeah. But I learned, I learned, you know, the discipline of you you can get frustrated and do things that put you at risk. And that's what I did. I I really could have had that burning a lot longer to where I could have done some major damage that would have required me to bail out of that airplane. That's incredible. I
0: I want to pile on really quickly because I have a a semi-similar story. Um, It's worth telling that taking off the last two ship on a Friday night sortie, as an instructor at weapons school. So you can imagine Friday nights, late night, you know, your last ones, everyone's, you're taking off, but everyone's already waiting for you at home, maintenance, et cetera. So I'm on a two ship sat ride, verifying two lightning pods with a student. And we've got two 2000 pounders. So we're in the F-16 now. We're wall to wall, as we say, we've got four missiles, big bombs, ECM pods, double chin pods, the whole thing. And we're in the low thrust um, Pratt & Whitney jets that the weapon school had. And right as I pulled the gear up, and I had not pulled the throttle out of afterburner, but the jet decelerated so fast that I hit my head into like the, the HUD and the, the upfront control panel. And as soon as I did that, I began to, to start zooming. And the soft yells at me, who, who's a friend of mine, uh, another instructor doing Supervisor of Flying Duties that night. He yells, don't punch off your bombs. So I'm like, okay. The critical uh, procedure would have been you know, to Zoom and storage jettison. And it's like the one time I was going to get to hit the, what we call the OG's doorbell and drop two 2,000-pounders 2, off the end of the runway at Nellis at night. And so... You know, when you hear a directive call like that, you adhere to it. There's something that I don't know. So I snivel the jet, it's full of fuel, bags of gas, bombs, the whole nine yards, and I can maintain about 88% thrust. If I pull the throttle any further forward, the jet just starts to rattle so bad, you know, you can't even read the HUD and your teeth are chattering. Major engine problem. And i can only go you know about 330 knots because i you know can't push it any faster so now i'm climbing up and, and my wingman had already taken off on the ipa record and because of that call now i'm super super heavyweight and i can't go fast um had, you know had i punched off the bombs i would have got rid of you know two 370 gallon tanks and two 2000 pound bombs come back and land so for the next three hours I'm at like 10,000 feet over Nellis, burning a hole in the sky, trying to burn down gas so that I can land since I'm heavyweight with all this stuff. But since I can't push the power past 88%, it takes forever. But the odd thing to uh, Chili's point was, you know, there's somebody upstairs who's got a plan for you because while I'm holding up at altitude, we hear a guard call. And we've got these brand new, amazing lightning pods. And over at Beatty Airfield, um, gosh, which is like nearly 40 miles away from Nellis, I guess, an airplane crashed on the runway at night. And so we're, I'm watching this and basically directing a rescue court from like high key at Nellis because we can see high fidelity all this going on. So making a long story long because of how long it took me to burn down gas and I still regret not being able to push the OG's doorbell. But uh, yeah, it, it is crazy how some of these things happen, but there, there seems to be a, a reason for it.
4: Yeah.
3: And, you know, it's like when you started telling that story about, you know, being heavyweight, taking off and having engine problems. The only thing I could think of is, I'll bet maybe at that moment for the one time in your life, you wished you were in, in an Eagle. <laughs>
0: oh No, sir, I didn't have that th- <laughs> 16 guys (laughs) and
4: and F15 guys. Yeah. Two cultures.
3: You two against me. It's a fair fight. No, it's still unfair. You guys are still in trouble.
0: (laughs) Well, as always, it's so awesome to sit around and and tell stories and, and hear from each other's experiences. So I can't say thanks enough for taking time out of your busy schedules to share some of this with our audience. And again, just hope everybody has an amazing holiday season and hope you enjoy the stories from the the group here that we have at Mitchell because it really is hands down just an incredible group of professionals
3: absolutely slick and
4: appreciate you so much take care let's do it again sometime sounds good
1: slick thank you so much it's always great to be able to share our stories and experiences and talk about what we love flying
2: yeah, thanks, Lick, and uh, thanks to all our brothers and sisters who are downrange and overseas on remote this Christmas. We miss you guys, and thanks, to With that, I'd like to extend a
0: big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to The Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.